All right. I'm not teaching this. A good friend of mine, Kevin Dormer over here to the right, he has prepped this lesson. He's done some stuff for us last year. He's got a, it's neat when you meet somebody that's got the same passions as you do. And so we get to have these discussions and talk about it. So man, he's a gifted teacher. He studies, he puts his time in. Uh, again, his name is Kevin Dormer. I'm going to leave it at that and turn it over to him. And thanks a lot, Kevin, for teaching tonight. The first thing I'll say is don't be alarmed. There's a lot of a uh, lot of notes pages. I'm not going to keep you here till nine. I don't want to do that. But my thought was, looking at the stuff that I studied to prepare for this, I'd rather have you have more detail in your notes that you can look at later. I'm not going to be able to cover all that in detail because it would take way too long. So if it seems like I'm kind of skipping over some things and going fast, that's intentional. Uh, so don't worry about that if you see. I know there's a lot of notes on there. Uh, big picture, I'm not an Islamic studies minor. I was an engineering degree in a small boys college in Colorado Springs. So uh, this is not by any means, this is my area of expertise. So if I mispronounce some things, if I get some things not quite right, and you are a, a professional at, at Islam, please, you won't hurt my feelings. Let me know, like, hey, this wasn't quite right. Or here's, you know, here's how you could present that in a more accurate way. Because I want to do that. I don't want to mischaracterize anything that we talk about. I would say the big picture for tonight is there's no way that we could comprehensively cover an entire worldview uh, in an hour. You think about how much time we spend just on the Christian worldview alone and all the different aspects of that and how many years that we've spent understanding some of the intricacies of Christianity. There's no way we could cover all that tonight. So what is our focus? First of all, I'm just going to cover a couple of things that Rick hit on last week to understand why are we doing this? What is the importance of understanding our worldview accurately, other worldviews, what is the point of that, and why is it so important? Secondly, um, we're not going to be able to cover all the details of Islam, so just kind of some of the background, understanding things that would be good to know in conversations with other people. And then most importantly, how do we be equipped enough to be able to start conversations, not be an expert in Islam, but to say, you know what, I know enough to, one, find out what I don't know and what I need to study more, and then what do I do with it? How do I effectively start those conversations, knowing that I'm not going to have every answer, but I'm comfortable enough to say, hey, I could at least start this conversation. Uh, so that's really the point. And I want you to just think about that as far as the lens of why we're doing this tonight. So first of all, Rick talked about this a little bit. Religion kind of gets put in the category sometimes of uh, this group of people over here versus being a, a worldview. And a religion is just a set of beliefs about the cause and nature and purpose of the universe. Nobody is free from answering these key questions, right? Everybody has to have an answer for why are we here? Where did life come from? What happens when we die? What is the purpose and meaning of, of why we're here in the first place? And sometimes we, we put the burden of proof uh, just on ourselves when we have these conversations with other people. And I think of um, when I was in a squadron in Las Vegas, a friend of mine came into the, we were working one day, and he was talking about, I can't remember what the topic was, but he said, you know, Religion, we should just really leave that at home, right? That's not something you should bring to work. You should just leave it at, leave it at home, you know? And a couple of guys were like, yeah, that makes sense. And so I was trying to think, okay, how do, I, how do I start this conversation? There's quite a few, maybe one other Christian back in that area where we work. And I said, um, you know, if you think about it, religion does have a deity involved, but it's really, it's, it's how you, uh, you can't leave it at home because it answers all the questions about why we're here, where we're going, what, what is our purpose, but also why we work the way we do. Where do ethics come from? Why do we work hard or not? You know, all those things, you, you can't leave those at home, just like even if you're, you're not a Christian, but you have some other viewpoint, you have answers to those questions too. And he's, he said, yeah, I guess you're right. I can't really leave that at home. But it's a, it's a pretty easy catchphrase that other people could say, yeah, that makes sense. You should leave your religion at home. But a worldview answers these questions. And so we should be able to ask other people, well, how do you answer those questions rather than just allowing the burden of proof to always be put on us uh, as Christians? What is the purpose of this class? Why are we doing equip classes talking about different worldviews? If, if you have noticed that worldview training and apologetics is invaluable to you, what are you going to do with that? So do we just go to equip classes and kind of check it off the list of things that I've attended but not really put into practice uh, and chances are, if you're here, you already see that there's a lot of value to apologetics and worldview training. So what do we do with our, our young people, our kids, our grandkids, other people that obviously aren't here tonight, but you know, I and mean, that's the way I feel about it, apologetics and, and those types of 
uh, topics really have helped me and have changed me quite a bit in knowing I'm confident in why Christianity is true. And when you're convinced something is true, rather than just, well, I've been told I believe it for so many years, you can't help but be different. And you're going to want to share that with other people. And the same thing is true with, with young people. They need to be convinced that it's actually true, not just because they grew up in the South, they go to a great Bible teaching church, maybe grow up in a Christian family. Uh, one, one of my simple analogies in my brain, especially with young people, is if you remember the Higgins boats from uh, Normandy in World War II, you can all picture those things going to the beaches, right? And they have a little bit of time. And it's not a perfect analogy, but if you think of our, our young people are in the boats, and you, know, you can kind of see, you know what's coming. You know what happens when we hit the beach. Uh, but they don't necessarily know. Things seem okay. They don't have the, the perspective of what culture is trying to do to them. But we know what's coming. So what do we do on the way to the beach? Because when, when we get there, it's not going to be sandals. It's not going to be some resort, right? It's, culture is coming for them. And a lot of them are already under a lot of fire that we did not experience the same way when we were at their same ages. So what do we do now? Do we have that sense of urgency of taking what we learn here and conveying it to them uh, before they hit the beach. Discipleship, you know, Bellevue is great. They do a great job. Um, but worldview training, ultimately, especially as parents or if we have other young people that we have the opportunity to influence, it's really our job to do that discipleship. So think about how we can make that a reality. The good news is, if you understand the importance, man, there's a lot of uh, great resources that are already there. A couple of those, I think um, Rick has talked about these before, STR, Stand to Reason, and uh, Cross-examined are two of the many great uh, resources to start with. If you're trying to look for what, what are some worldview camps that young people can go to, and I'm going to say this lovingly. I know sports camps are important, right? But when it comes to having our young people still remain faithful to Christ after leaving high school and not join the 50 to 70% that just don't come back to church, we got to make that evaluation of what is more important when it comes time to choosing one or the other. And some of these camps are really uh, excellent for that. There are student conferences uh, that are framed around apologetics that are really well done. You can see the website for that. And a few books. I get no royalties from the bookstore to, to talk about these. If I can make these essential reading for Bellevue Christians, I would, but I don't have that authority. Uh, this one's called Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. Um, that one is excellent. Uh, has anybody read Tactics by Greg Kokel? I know my wife has. Anybody else? It's really effective. And, and if you put the simple things that it talks about into practice, it will change your ability to have conversations with other people because you'll realize my objective is maybe to start the conversation and put a stone in their shoe, not to necessarily get all the way to the finish line. And you don't have to know all the answers to start the conversation. So that one is, uh, is really good. And then this one, uh, so the next generation will know by Sean McDowell and uh, Jay Warner Wallace. Those are, uh, I think should be essential reading, but they're awesome. A great quote by, uh, I think it was Greg Kogel that said this, there's been a lot of million-dollar apologists, right? And we think, well, I can't be that guy. I can't be a Norm Geisler or William Lane Craig, some of these folks that are really, really awesome in apologetics. We don't need that. We need the third column of a million one-dollar apologists, people that can put in the time to say, you know what? I may not be like those guys, but I can get there. I can help teach that the Christian worldview is the best answer to the way things really are. It's a, it's a good description of reality, and I can share that with other people. Okay, so what does it have to do with Islam? Like I said, you can't realistically know everything about all religions, but we can learn enough to be effective ambassadors to at least a few of them. You got to know the true worldview first, right? You got to be able to recognize the counterfeit by knowing what's actually true. And this is a cheesy analogy that I'll borrow from uh, somebody else, but you know, if you came up to me and said, "Hey, Kevin, I got a headache. Do you have anything that can help with that?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, sure. I got these. I got these two pills here." And uh, I think, you know, I think they're one of them's Tylenol. I'm like, what do you mean one of them's Tylenol? Like, are they the same? I'm like, well, they're pretty much the same. They're they're in you know pill form. They're blue. They're the same shape. I'm like, well, that's that doesn't really make me feel very good. And then if I told you one of them's aspirin, but the other one's arsenic, suddenly you don't care about the similarities, right? The differences is what matter. And sometimes with worldviews and religions, we really like to say, well, they're kind of similar. But we need to remind other people that we're talking to, sometimes the, the differences can kill you. And the same thing is true with answering these big questions about what do we do with God? What about sin? What does redemption come from? The similarities become kind of irrelevant. It's really the differences that matter. 
So again, this information about Islam, same thing, we need to understand those differences and we don't want to just file this, uh, this information away as things that we, we heard but we don't, in, don't put into practice. So with that being said, here's kind of our local area. This is the objective, right, is to get this information, figure out how do I know enough to start conversations. And man, there are a lot of Muslims that live around here. And I, I didn't really know that moving here, but just in the short time we've been here, um, this one that's, I don't know if I can point to that on the screen, this one right here is the, uh, a Muslim uh, Islamic Family Center that's out actually pretty close to where we live. It is massive. There are, there are huge numbers of people that go there. And I don't know, we were trying to look up the percentage-wise how many uh, Muslims are in the area, but there's a lot more and it's, it's growing. So the opportunities are there. Just the other day we were at Shelby Farms and they had set up a table from this uh, Islamic Family Center and we're handing out literature and talking to people. Um, imagine that, you know, just hanging out at the park and talking to people about uh, Christianity in our case, but they were doing that with, with Islam. So the opportunities are there. It's just whether or not we want to uh, take the time to prepare and engage. Okay, so real quick history. Again, I'm going to go pretty fast through this stuff. The word Islam means submission. Uh, a Muslim is someone who submits to Allah and the principles of Islam as embodied in the Ummah, and this is significant. This is the worldwide community of Muslims. And so what you'll see, there is general and special revelation, but then there's also this aspect of community. And because uh, Islam is a very comprehensive worldview, it touches every aspect of their individual culture, that it's, it's much harder for someone who is a, a Muslim to even consider leaving, because it's not just leaving a set of thoughts and saying, okay, now I, I believe this worldview, it's leaving a whole community and a lot of other things that we'll talk about. But that is the worldwide community of, uh, of Muslims. That, that combines religious commands and ideology with cultural practices, um, and then you end up with this hierarchy of children to adults, women to men, family to community, and then community leaders to the Islamic State. So there is this overall um, Islamic State aspect that we don't really think of as being subject to in the same way with respect to a religion to government, but they view that in a very different way. Um, Keep this in mind as you read through these other parts, that individual identity and interests are subjugated. So if you start to consider, like, I kind of understand these aspects of Christianity, and I think these might make more sense to me, your individual ideas are much less important than, than at, or being a part of the community and believing the, uh, the overall Muslim beliefs of the, the Ummah, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, according to the Islamic narrative, the founder was Muhammad. He was around in 8570. And at age 40, he had these visions that he thought were demonic, and he may have been onto something in the first place. Uh, but his wives persuaded them, that is plural wives, uh, that they were from God. So at age 40, he claimed to have been visited by Gabriel. He was commissioned as God's prophet at that point. And then uh, after the next several years, he begins transmitting what Gabriel told him orally, and that ends up getting written down into uh, the Quran. As we talk about Islam, just kind of have your um, awareness up for similarities that you see between Islam and uh, LDS or, or Mormon beliefs, Jehovah's Witness, when it comes to thinking about where, did, where does their scripture come from, uh, the purpose of a prophet, things that you can and can't question. You'll see a lot of similarities, and it's very interesting as you look at the Christian worldview and see some of the departures that come off of that. There's actually a lot of similarities there that uh, I didn't really see before. Okay, so the uh, dictation of the Quran continued for 20 years until he died. Um, there were several military victories in there, and then that's when it really started to grow. And after his death, uh, for the next 100 years, Muslim was spreading really through takeover into massive parts of the world. They far surpassed the Roman Empire. And the only reason why they stopped uh, in Europe, I think, was because of the, the Battle of Tours. I can't remember who was, who was fighting there, but that's really where it stopped at that point. But in the process, tens of millions, including Christians, uh, were taken into slavery or killed. Now, here's uh, Teddy Roosevelt's quote. Uh, wherever the Muhammads have had a complete sway, wherever the Christians have been unable to resist them by the sword, Christianity has ultimately disappeared. And it was, it was moving very quickly until it was stopped at that point. If you've ever wondered about the difference between Sunni and Shia, uh, types of Shiite Muslims, Sunni Islam, so that's the majority of them, 80%. It really ha comes down to where should the successor of Muhammad come from? Sunnis believe it should be from a consensus of Muslim, kind of by that larger community that we talked about. Shiite believe that it should be from the bloodline of Muhammad, and that's more important. 
And this other point is important as well, that imams are leaders gifted by God to guide Muslims. So not just you know, selected leaders, but they actually have a speaking role uh, with a little bit of speaking role for, for Allah, not just people that they select. And then lastly, Sufi Islam, uh, Baha'i faith is kind of similar to this or related to it. This one has more of a personal experience of oneness. It's, it's more pantheistic where God is in everything. Uh, but that one is a much, much smaller major, uh, minority than Sunni and Shiite Islam. You guys doing okay so far? Am I going too fast? Yeah, Rick. That's a good question. I was actually looking through... Um, I could probably find that pretty easily. I didn't. That's not something I researched. But I was actually looking through the this Voice of the Martyrs prayer guide. And if you guys aren't um, supporters of them or follow them, I encourage you to do so. But it kind of goes through a lot of the countries that are hostile or restricted to Christians. And I was looking at the the numbers that are you know Muslim or uh, Islamic, and some of them are Shia, some of them are Sunni, and it kind of specifies which one is which. So I don't I don't know, but that's something I should find out. It's a good question. Rick is stumping me already. <laughs> That's okay. Yes. So as far as like how quickly after him saying he had these visions, did he become convinced it wasn't from demons, it was from God? Yeah, he used to lie. So they wouldn't have, have had that distinction um, until he basically made it a distinction. So he talked about it being Allah. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit, how that actually means it's not a name for a different God, it's a name for God and even uh, some Christians will refer to the Christian God as Allah because the, mer- the word actually means God, if that makes sense. Now, that doesn't mean, it's kind of like if you're talking to a Mormon, like, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus. Like, well, we need to talk about that because there's some very different distinctions in there. So they use the same term. Does that help answer your question? So not that it's the God of the Old Testament, but that it was God that was giving him the visions. And you'll see very quickly that they make a distinction between the God that we refer to and that God, especially as how he relates to us and Jesus and those types of things. So it's very different. I don't know how quickly that that difference came where he said, I think I had dreams that were demonic, and then he changed his mind on that. One of the things that's tricky about, um, I think, Islam, similar to maybe Mormonism less so, is if you have a religion that is not falsifiable, if somebody can say, well, I had this vision, it's from God, can you prove that I didn't? It's, it becomes very difficult to show, like, well, I, I don't know if that's legitimate or not, and especially going back in, in time, you don't have other witnesses that could say, well, that, I can show that that's a falsifiable claim based off these other things, but if it can't be proven false, it's unfalsifiable, and uh, there's several religions that conveniently are very difficult to prove to be wrong because it's based off of, well, I had these visions from Gabriel, and we just wrote them down. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Okay. Okay, uh, let's see. One of the things that we would want Christianity to be is also comprehensive, right? We shouldn't have this secular, sacred split where... We have what we talk about on Sundays and Wednesdays and how that applies to the workplace and our family culture and everything else. We shouldn't have that divide. Sometimes we see it intentionally or unintentionally. Um, I will say that Islam does a good job of not doing that. So they, they don't divide life into this, the uh, spiritual and the secular. And here's a good quote that kind of describes that. Uh, this guy is the Secretary General of the Islamic Council of Europe. He says, Islam aims at changing life and producing a new man and a new society both committed to God and the welfare of mankind. Parts of that we would agree with, right? That is why Islam is not a religion in the limited sense of the word. Rather, it is a complete code of life 
and a culture-producing factor. Again, some of those things, Christianity, you want to be a, a culture-changing, a culture-producing factor. You'll see what he means a little bit more in a little bit, but that's uh, kind of important to know when it comes to counting the cost uh, as far as leaving Islam is concerned. Okay, what about uh, commonalities with Christianity and Old Testament Judaism? This is really important because like Rick talked about in the survey, there were quite a few people that said, yeah, I think we kind of worship the same God, uh, the God of Islam and the God of Christianity. And you'll see very quickly that that could not be true. Islam would also say that's not true because they also don't believe in pluralism, that multiple religions can be true at the same time. Um, but they do believe that there's one sovereign creator God who's supremely powerful, that God interacts with creation, has spoken through messengers, and captured his scripture message in holy books. That's kind of where the commonality ends, right? So if you wanted to say it's similar to Islam, you could on those two points in a very light fashion, but that's about it. So what about the nature of God? So we kind of talked about this a little bit. Allah is the Arabic word for God, so some Arabic-speaking Christians also use that word. Uh, the attributes of Allah and the nature of his revelation differ significantly from the Old and the New Testaments. So here's where we're going to get into some of those. God is eternal and self-existent, created everything, and set the universe in order. We agree with that. This is what the Quran 2.117 says. To him is due the primal origin of the heavens and the earth. When he decreeth the matter, he saith to it, be, and it is. So God spoke and created the world. And by the way, this is all kind of like reading New King James or King James with a little bit of heresy mixed in, so it's pretty rough. King James is good if you're like 350 or older. Other than that, you know, I, I tend to try to stay away from it. But anyway, that's a separate topic. Okay, so that's on the nature of God, and then um, they do believe God is transcendent, but he relates to people only through the prophets and teachings. Humans are not made in God's image. God doesn't share any of his attributes or nature with anyone or anything else. So obviously that's a huge departure uh, from what Christianity teaches. You think about how many aspects of culture are affected by this, too. Think about being made in God's image, how that affects the way we view so many different things in deciding how do we treat other people differently than animals, uh, how we care for them no, no matter what because they're made in God's image. Uh, they don't believe that. They have a difference there for sure. And then Muslims strongly reject the Trinity and deny the deity of Jesus Christ. So if you were talking to somebody who said, yeah, that's basically the same thing, you know, we believe in the same God, hopefully on these two points alone you could say, well, what do you think, based on these two things, would you agree that they cannot possibly uh, agree on the things that really matter? In fact, one God in three persons is viewed as shirk, so that sin of polytheism is a huge deal. And I didn't really talk about it, but uh, in Mecca, where Muhammad was, polytheism was very, that was kind of the common uh, religion. And so it, it makes sense, if he was trying to kind of depart from that, that would be the thing to, to get away from, and that's obviously a, a very big deal. Uh, the Quran in this verse says, They do blaspheme who say God is one, one of three in a trinity, for there is no God except one God. If they desist not from their word of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. So that's pretty clear. The, the trinity is out. Therefore, if there is, no, there is no God man, there's no Jesus, there is no Holy Spirit, you know, God's interaction with creation is just in those first couple of things. It's only through the prophets that they write about and the teachings, and that's it. Okay, so what about the Bible? God communicated his will to human beings primarily through a series of prophets. Uh, these include prophets of the Old and New Testaments that originally taught Islam. Uh, they believe that that was lost today because of the corruption of Scripture over time. You guys know any other religions that also teach that, where the Bible is true, in so much that it is translated correctly. If you ever talk to an LDS person or a Jehovah's Witness, it's very much, well, you know, your Bible is corrupted. That's a huge hinge point on which to be able to say what we have is true, what you have has been corrupted over time. And one of the things that we should probably be really good at as Christians is to show how does textual criticism happen. doesn't mean you have to be an expert in it, but to be able to address that issue, including our young people, that what we have today can be demonstrably shown that it's what was written down by the authors a long time ago with like a 99.9% .9 you know, certainty with like minor 
spelling errors and things like that. But we can be extremely confident of that. Obviously, when these religions began, when Mormonism began, we didn't have the number of copies that we have today of entire books of the Bible. There's 25,000 different manuscripts that we have today that you can use to compare and say, okay, based on all this, we know that what we have is correct. And sometimes people think that, the, you know, they'll ask uh, Jehovah's Witness or somebody will say, what kind of, what version of the Bible are you using? Oh, okay, well, that's, that one has been corrupted. Only this version is correct. Almost like we played the telephone game with Bible translations, and just over time it's been changed, as opposed to being translated from the original, the manuscripts that we have, into whatever it is, King James, ESV, etc. So it's interesting. That, that similarity just keeps popping up in different worldviews that, well, we trust parts of the Bible, but not other parts because it's been corrupted. All right, I'll go kind of quick through this. Um, they do believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. He committed miraculous acts, but he was not God incarnate. He didn't die on a cross or was buried. He was not an atoning sacrifice, and uh, there's no salvation through, through Jesus. Pretty major departure in all those things. Uh, here's one of the quotes. They said that, that, they that said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of God, but they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them, and those who, who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge and only conjecture to follow. For surely they killed him not. Nay, God raised him up until him, unto himself, and God is exalted in power. Because of, you know, we have so many verses that make it very clear that that is not accurate, a description of what Jesus did. Um, so much of the New Testament that they teach the Apostle Paul was one of the great corruptors of Christianity. And obviously that's necessary because as you look at Philippians 2, um, so much in 1 Corinthians, so many verses that talk about what Jesus did and that he was the God-man. He, he claimed to be there was no doubt, even based on of his own words, that he wasn't claiming to just be a, a good teacher that was sent. Um, you have to say, well, everything that Paul wrote is, is out because it would contradict with all that. So what about... Oh, so one more thing about uh, the creation account. So they do agree that um, Adam and Eve were, were there. They messed up. They were forgiven. Uh, but they deny the significance of the fall. And because of this, because we're not innately sinful because of that happening, um, we're essentially good from the get-go, which again has parallels to other worldviews that you're probably familiar with. Change comes from the outside in, not redemption from the inside. Uh, and this is, from folks that have talked about witnessing to Muslims, this is a huge uh, help because if you're, if you're a Muslim, you have no guarantee that you'll ever be able to do enough. Similar to LDS, right? You're, you're trying to do good works, uh, but your good deeds will be weighed in a balance to determine who goes to paradise and who goes to hell. God's mercy is central, but your actions determine your destination. I'm not going to read that whole verse, but you can uh, see that it, that's what that reflects. There's no assurance of salvation except being martyred uh, in the cause of jihad, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. All right, real quickly on general revelation, they do believe that uh, God has shown himself to us through creation. In fact, the cosmological argument, which you guys are probably familiar with from Rick's other classes, that was actually developed by Islamic philosophers, and Christians make use of that today. We talked about it in, uh, in middle school the last couple weeks. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause. And it's pretty simple. That alone doesn't point towards the God of the Old Testament, but it does point towards the need of a creator. Um, and so that's actually where that came from. And then when it comes to special revelation, we talked about uh, God sent messengers um, to warn against fake teachings. Moses and Jesus, Ishmael, Isaac, and Jacob are prophets of Islam, per what they believe. And Muhammad is a successor to those prophets. The words of the Quran are literal words of God dictated word for word to Muhammad, unlike previous revelations that were corrupted. And I was looking at this uh, pamphlet that they were handing out at Shelby Farms, and that was one of the things that stuck out right away. Uh, it says, of all religious books, the Quran alone 
has remained unaltered, unedited, and unchanged. Whether or not non-Muslim scholars accept the Quran as the word of God, they are unanimous in the view that its language and its wording have, been, have remained in their original form. All other divine books have been edited, rehashed, and revised by their, their votaries with the passage of time. So you can see that's a critical claim. In order for Islam to be true, you need the corruption uh, of the Bible over time. That is a, a, a big point. Uh, they believe the Quran is the best and most beautiful book on earth. To disrespect it is a grave insult. Um, I've never talked to someone with the Quran involved, and so as you'll see with some of the things we'll talk about later, that's something to keep in mind because, as you probably heard, you know, the gospel message is offensive enough, right? It is true, but people don't like to be told, hey, you're broken and sinful. Here's the good news for that, but first you've got to hear the bad news. So if we can do other things to not necessarily offend who we're talking to in the first place, that's a wise, you know, tactical thing to do. So obviously that's something we have to be careful about. If they, if they view the book itself as being something to be super careful with. In addition to the Quran, the Hadith is another source of theology. This is traditions of teachings, uh, the actions of Muhammad, and, and the people that were there with him during that time. Sound familiar? This book, and then here's some other books to follow. Uh, what about humanity? Humans are slaves of God, not his sons and daughters, or made in his image. We talked about Adam and Eve making a mistake. They were forgiven. Um, Islam is a way to offer humanity a way back to the pristine, pristine state. Does that sound familiar to even secularism where we're taught we're basically good and then culture messes us up? Or even, you know, Rousseau that our founders rejected who said, you know, man is free but everywhere he's in chains. It's because we're born good but then we get messed up over time, which is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us. So that's interesting to think about. Uh, every human being is born a Muslim in submission to Allah, but we are led astray to worship false gods or deny God. And to refuse to become a Muslim is rebellion, thus justifying Muslim jihad to battle that. All right, I'm going to go through this quickly. Um, so jihad in general, it can be interpreted a couple different things. Uh, one thing I'll highlight is it's not viewed as an act of aggression, but it's an act of restoration. So the offering of Allah's mercy to those who are willing to end the rebellious ways. So if you're in rebellion to Allah, then jihad is a justifiable mercy way, or merciful way to uh, give you a chance to change your mind. Obviously, if you don't do that and you're killed in the process, I think it, I guess they still put it under the category of being merciful, uh, but that one's a little bit tougher to follow. Uh, Islam is so... We'll talk a little bit more about moderate Muslims versus Islamists, but Islamists believe that peace occurs when non-Muslims cease rebelling, so basically give in, and jihadis, the extremist version, are eager to use physical violence to complete that mission. Uh, how, uh, per special revelation, how are we supposed to live? We kind of talked about submitting to the overall culture. Um, these are, you probably heard of the five pillars of Islam. There's a, a sixth one we'll talk about a little bit, but these are the things that you're supposed to do to remain part of the Muslim community and to give up your individual rights. Uh, Shahada is that claim that there is no God but Allah, and they're, not, again, talking about a different, different being, and Muhammad is his prophet. That includes obeying the Quran, following the example of Muhammad's life, so it's not just making that claim. And then prayer five times a day, as well as for men, um, and sometimes women as well, at noon. Um, and then uh, fasting during Ramadan. So those are probably familiar to us. I won't go to a lot of detail that you guys can read on that. Giving of alms, giving 2.5% to the poor, uh, and then the pilgrimage to Mecca. If you, can, if you can make it, you're supposed to do that at least once in your lifetime, and it's supposed to be kind of a unifying thing where there's no different uh, classes of people, and you just go and uh, perform the Hajj. And then lastly, the sixth pillar is uh, jihad. So that is the most self-sacrificing action you can undertake, this is the one thing you can do. Remember how we talked about you can't know if the, the works that you did on earth were sufficient to make it into heaven. This is the one caveat to that. So uh, if you die in the process of jihad, then you're guaranteed entrance in a paradise where men have access to scores of perpetual virgins. Women, they don't really talk about. Uh, so it's kind of an afterthought. Kind of makes you think about the origin of how all this started. Um, don't know what to expect for that part of it for jihad. Okay, the Quran specifies other laws and prohibitions, um, but the Sunnah also adds to that. So that's more legal rules and examples. They don't always agree with each other, 
Then you have the communal consensus. So in addition to the written laws, it's really what does the community say? And then occasionally other legal uh, stuff that factors in as well. There's something called abrogation that is uh, up for debate within different aspects of Islam. That says that later passages overrule the earlier ones. And if, that, if that's the case, then the later version or the earlier version of uh, Allah, who's peaceful and merciful, kind of gets replaced by the more violent and vengeful version later on. So abrogation seems like a minor thing, but if that is the case, then it's easier to justify um, acting more like the later version of Allah versus earlier. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, thanks for pointing that out. The quick thing I'll say on this is as far as uh, Christians or Jews living in Muslim lands, there are some cases where you can do that and they allow it, but you have to pay an extremely high tax to do so. And uh, you must always submit. You can't rebel. And you're still basically in rebellion if you're a Christian or a Jew but you can't speak out against Muslims. And a lot of the stories in the, the Voice of the Martyrs uh, testimonies definitely reflect that. Verse 3 to 5 says, If anyone desires a religion other than Islam, never will it be accepted of him. And in the hereafter, he will be in the ranks of those who have lost all spiritual good. Christianity gets picked on quite a bit as being exclusivist or not, you know, not saying everybody, everybody's views are true. But as you can see, that is not just uh, common to Christianity. Okay, real quick, radical versus moderate Islam. Basically, Islamic fundamentalists believe the literal application of the teachings of Muhammad and the full application of, of Sharia law. Uh, there was a Gallup survey that said, were the 9-11 attacks justified? And if you said, you know, a five, then it was completely justified or, or close to it versus one was unjustified. Only 7% of Muslims um, answered a four or five. But at a one point, six billion Muslims, that translates to about 112 or so uh, folks that would say, yep, that was a justified action. Here's what's important about uh, that and why we're talking about it. Um, the moderate view says jihad is a, a battle to discipline themselves or defend themselves against those who attack versus the Islamic version, the Islamist version that we just talked about. The Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah all teach jihad, and this statement I thought was pretty interesting, but it, it makes sense, and let me preface it by saying this. If, if you go to a concert and somebody's playing a Beethoven concerto, and they're doing a terrible job, you don't say, man, Beethoven is horrible, right? You don't blame the composer. You blame the person that's not playing Beethoven very well. Sometimes Christianity gets blamed for people that are not living out. They're not living out a Christ-like life. And rightfully so, right? We're, we're, we should be examining that, making sure we're aligning with what Scripture teaches us. If the teaching actually commands you to do something and you have to depart from that to be more moderate or not violent, um, then you're looking at a whole different story, if that makes sense. So just reading this, Islam is not a peaceful religion that has been hijacked by violent Muslims. It's a violent religion that has been, thankfully, predominantly hijacked by peaceful Muslims. And if you don't agree with that, I would say look at what the, the teachings are and say, well, what is it commanding? And are we departing from that or uh, are following it? A lot of people dread Islam's growth, including, uh, growth, including moderate Muslims. Uh, Muslims are afraid to speak about their beliefs against radicalism because of the cultural losses that they would experience doing so. And so what do we do as Christians? And I had to ask myself the same thing because as far as like other worldviews that I've spent more time trying to effect effectively engage people on their beliefs, Islam is not one that I've spent a lot of time on. I had to kind of ask, well, why is that? Is it because of my own different perspective on, on that point of view or not? But First John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. 
And we need to view Muslims with the same perspective of desiring that they know the same God that we do and understand who his son is and un un understand accurately the Christian point of view. Um, and we, this is how we prepare to do that. So now what? So that's kind of the big picture background. In the 20 minutes or so we have left, what do we do with that? Well, the good news is Muslims love talking about religion. And one in five of people on the planet are Muslims. So that's a pretty good good start, right? There are quite a few people that if you want to talk to them about religion, they're like, no, man, I don't, no thanks. I don't want any part of that. But that's not generally true with Muslims. The bad news is of the 1.6 billion worldwide, they're also the largest unreached people group. And by this time tomorrow, 27,000 roughly Muslims will die and enter eternity without Jesus. We talked about the cost of it being very different because uh, it, it's, a, it's a capital crime, basically. If you are Muslim and then you leave that, it's a much diff different cost than what we're used to here. Muslims are commanded to promote Islam, so the idea of engaging and trying to evangelize them is not going to seem weird or offensive because that's what they would want to do with us. And they already believe that other religions are false, so they don't believe in pluralism. So there is some common ground there that should make some conversations easier. All you got to do is overcome the idea that the Bible is corrupt, the Trinity is false, and Jesus' divinity is blasphemy, and that's it. Any, any questions? No, sorry. So that seems like a lot, but here's, a, here's some great strategy for starting these conversations and I would encourage you to check out at that uh, Stand to Reason website, there's something called the Ambassador's Guide to Islam. And it's written by a guy named Alan Schliemann who grew up in that community. And he kind of focuses on, just like you can, if you're talking to someone who is LDS or some other worldview, you can pretty easily go down some rabbit trails, right? You could talk about caffeine and polygamy and you know lots of things that are not gonna help you in a conversation with someone who is Mormon unless you're already really close to him and you can say like, hey, can we talk about this? Like, I don't, I don't follow, like this prophet changed his mind and how does that work if he's speaking for God? You know, sometimes you don't have a ton of time with an individual to make that conversation fruitful. And so you wanna focus on the things that matter, right? And not go down some sort of a rabbit trail. The same thing is true for talking to Muslims. Do you wanna talk about jihad and treatment of women? I mean, there's a lot of things that you could do that are maybe not gonna be the most productive ways of getting to the things that matter, right? So that's kind of what this uh, booklet talks about. And we're gonna hit a few of these points. Uh, Muslims do revere Jesus as an important prophet. His birth was foretold by angels, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, given the power to perform miracles. What we talked about, he was never dead or buried, it was taken up to heaven. He's gonna come back to usher in the end times, okay? So that's what they believe. Muhammad was not given the same status. His birth was not predicted, foretold, announced. The Quran never mentions him living a sinless life or performing miracles, and he died. He was buried in Saudi Arabia. He's not coming back. That doesn't mean that the Jesus of Islam and Christianity are, are anywhere close, because we talked about considering Jesus divine is the sin of shirk, and that uh, guarantees eternity in hell. But since Muslims view the Bible as corrupt in its current form, we have to help restore that authority first to address the issue of who Jesus actually is, the accurate view of who Jesus is. You could defend the Bible and talk about textual criticism, not a bad thing to do either, uh, challenging the Quran via textual criticism, um, how that was handed down, whether it was falsifiable claims or not. You could do those, but that takes a lot of time and preparation. So here is a, a good way to go as an option and something to, to study more. Use their source of authority to endorse ours. That doesn't mean don't start with the Bible, right? Start with the truth, because like we talked about in the evangelism class, you don't know how much gardening has already taken place with this individual you're talking to. They might already be already really close. Maybe they're convinced that, man, I, I do think that the Bible is not corrupted and some of this is true. Maybe there's people that have been working on them with the Holy Spirit for a long time. So don't skip that, that part just to go to this, right? Start with the Bible to present the gospel. But if and when they reject that because it's corrupted, then you move to this. And this is amazing. I didn't, I didn't know this uh, at all. The Quran says that the words of God can't be changed or corrupted. Okay, and that's where you start. Surah 6, 115, none can change his words. 1064, no, uh, no change can there be in the words of Allah. There is none that can alter the words and decrees of Allah, and Allah is capable of guarding his revelations from corruption. So the words of God cannot be changed or corrupted. 
if Allah is powerful enough to do so. Secondly, the Quran teaches that the Bible is the unchanged word of God. Surah 2, 136 says, Believe in all revelations given to the various prophets. And now this is kind of small. Say ye, we believe in Allah and the revelation given to us and to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and that given to Moses and Jesus, and that given to all prophets from their Lord. We make no difference between one and another of them. I know you're probably thinking, how can this be the case that there are things written down in their books that say that the Bible is unchanged and that Allah is able to protect his words from being corrupted? Well, we're probably also guilty of not always knowing what the Bible says. If you talk to LDS or other folks, that's also a common thing where not knowing these is not out of the question, especially how things are taught um, and not necessarily being familiar with all the verses yourself. Because remember, there is no personal relationship with God. You are doing these things, praying every day. Um, it's kind of a almost like a mechanistic thing. It's not something where you want to pour into the Word and find out the way we should want to do with um, our special revelation in the Bible. Going to the next part, uh, 136 says it chastises those who disregard any of God's revelations. And you can read that. Any who denieth Allah, his angels, his books, his messengers, and the day of judgment has gone for far, far astray. And I missed the part. So the scripture which he hath sent to his messengers and the scripture which he has sent to those before him. So again, talking about the scripture that came beforehand. This next verse tells Muslims not to argue with Jews and Muslims. The Muslims are commanded to say they believe in the Quran and the Bible. It's 10, uh, 1094, Muslims should consult Jews and Christians if they doubt what the Quran teaches. Um, and then these other verses that I'm not going to go through for time, it affirms the reliability of the gospel as late as the 7th century. So if in the 7th century the gospel was affirmed as being correct, again, through textual criticism and looking at what we have handed down you know, before that and especially by the 7th century, we can very easily show that hey, this, what we have today matches up with what they had then. And if they affirm that that was correct at that time, doesn't that have severe implications for the reliability of the New Testament as not being corrupted, if you can see that? If the Quran taught the Bible was textually pure in the 7th century, Muslims can trust it today. So that puts a contradiction in place. They have to choose one door or the other. Either Allah is inept, if he's unable to protect his own divine revelation, which the Quran says that he, he can, he's powerful enough to do that, or he could have prevented it, but he chose not to, so he's immoral. And if so, why would he command Muslims, Christians, and Jews to follow a corrupted book? So now there's kind of a dilemma there by pointing out through their scriptures, again, um, that it points towards the reliability of the Bible. Once that common ground is established, now you can return to painting an accurate picture of Jesus. And remember, the first time somebody hears this, it's probably not going to be, hey, all right, let's go. I'm, I'm with you, right? Very costly, especially if it's something they've never heard before. But if what you're trying to do is, you know, asking the Holy Spirit to really make the difference, but maybe just put a stone in their shoe and, and think, man, I've never heard this before. Maybe I should go and look at this myself and, and spend more time thinking about it you might begin that process, and so don't feel frustrated if you present this and you don't get a you know, real warm reception right away. C.S. Lewis says that um, you've never met a mere mortal. So every soul that we interact with is someone who's going to spend eternity either separated from God or with him. It's really hard to carry around that perspective every day, right, when we're busy with kids and jobs and everything else. But with that in mind, don't we want to learn these things? And, and again, it's tough to be an expert on everything, but can't we learn enough to have that perspective and say, I, I can do this. I can start those conversations, try to persuade Muslims or really anyone that the Christian story of reality is true. It's accurate. Pray for the Holy Spirit being preeminent in all that, right? Because we can't ultimately change people's hearts. We can. God tells us that there's this connection between the mind and the soul, and we can help remove some of those bricks in the wall that people say, well, I don't, I don't need that because I've been told your Bible is corrupted, so I don't even need to address the idea of Jesus. And so if we can start that process of moving, helping remove some of those bricks uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit, um, 
he's the one that can ultimately do that work, but we can have a part in getting to be a part of that. And we're not trying to win. If you walk away from a discussion, you feel like, yeah, I won that. You probably, I, I, I know this by experience, you probably messed up. The objective is not to win, right? It's to put a stone in their shoe and have them thinking, man, I want to do this again. That person was kind. They were winsome. Uh, they were thoughtful of, of my, you know, what I understand is Islam to be about and wanting to share more. And hopefully you leave the door open for the next time. That's the goal, right, is to say, you know, take notes, take an interest in what they're telling you because chances are they're going to say some things, and rightfully so, you should say, I, I don't know, I haven't heard about that. Can I get back to you? Can I follow up with you on that? And that's okay. You know, you can leave that door open for further conversation, hopefully. Ask God to provide opportunities and, and mean it, and he will. He'll, if you ask for it, he'll give you the chances to use this. But be prepared and so that when you're looking for those opportunities, you actually engage and take them. And then lastly, um, the debrief is something that's been you know, beat into me for the, in my military career. The debrief is essential. That's, that's really where you learn. After a conversation that either went well or it didn't go very well, thinking back, like, what did I not do? Did I, did I lose my cool? Did I try to win the argument? Um, what, did not, what didn't go so well? And what did go well that you were surprised by that, man, that, that stuff that Alan Schleeman talked about was really effective and... Um, Maybe we moved a little bit further towards the goalposts with this person, and, and the relationship is still there. Share that with other believers, right? Because if we have to learn all these lessons ourselves as a result of a whole bunch of individual conversations, we're not going to be nearly as good as we could be as a body of believers as, at being ambassadors to this group of people or any group of people that we're surrounded by every day at work and in our communities. So get some other folks involved. If, you're gonna, if you go and talk to someone, and you say, hey, I'm going to go back and talk to this uh, person who is a, a Muslim that I just met. You want to come with me and be part of these conversations? Bring him with you. Uh, but don't forget to you know, share how things went, if it w went well or didn't go well with other people. All right. I think with that, I want to leave a few minutes for questions. I know that was really fast. I've been uh, justifiably accused of talking quickly. And uh, I apologize for that. I know that's a lot of information to try to power through, but I wanted to get through at least kind of the wave tops of that information so that you can go back and learn more about it. And again, the idea is to put it into practice, not just to file it away. Be like, okay, learn about Islam and, and we're good to go. So what questions do you have, including Rick? Rick can ask me more questions that I don't know the answer to as well. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's a great point. As I was reading about those different perspectives just on um, from, from jihad all the way to how you're supposed to treat your wife and things that are acceptable, it's pretty eye-opening. Again, not something that I would go into a conversation with if I was, had a short period of time to, to talk with a Muslim, but you're absolutely right. As far as viewing uh, women in the way that Christianity does, it's like night and day the more you understand about what what Islam teaches, but yeah, that's a great point. Anything else? Yeah. So I think that is the name that they use, but if, even if you share a common name, but by that name you mean something totally different, 
uh, whether it's his relationship with us, the Trinity, all those things. If you were, oh, go ahead. I see. And so Christians, now that term has become synonymous with using it just as a general term for God, but it, when it was selected then, it was because he was choosing that amongst one of the many that were available. Okay. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Does that help? That helped me. <laughs> Thank you. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Are you asking if if I know that that will happen or whether or not it... So those are, you're definitely opening up some different questions there. I don't know if I can answer those right now. But here's, here's one thing I will say. Um, because of that hierarchy of authority, um, they view political authority is capable of advancing God's agenda. So if, if that political authority is deemed to be under Islamic control, then you, can, you don't really question them as being fallen individuals like we do. You know, we look at people in government and say, well, they have a sinful nature just like I do. And with that comes a degree of distrust, right? Not going into details, we'll save that for uh, Rick's politics discussion so I don't get in trouble. But that's a, that's a significant difference, right? If you view your political leadership as you, you don't distrust them because they are good by nature and they're part of the, um, they're advancing God's agenda, well, that's a very big departure from the way we view our own representative democracy. Yes? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. I hadn't heard that before. Anything else? Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. That's a great point.
Hmm. That's great. Sir, did you have a question? Yeah, absolutely. Even the worldviews that are, yeah. There's always the, the desire to twist what is true, right? Even if it's just a little bit. We see it within progressive Christianity, right? You take something that's true and then you change it just enough where it's not really the truth anymore, but it seems more appealing. People think, oh, I like this version over here. This is kind of more welcoming. and But it, it always eliminates who Jesus is and that we're sinful and, and the things that are really important but yeah we have to we have to be aware of that and that starts with knowing what is true so we can know what the counterfeit is and have our guard up yes yeah Just commonality, yeah. He's great. I think he... Um, they refer to him a little bit in that ambassador's guide to Islam, but I think he passed away pretty recently, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. Right. As a church, he remembered, as we're going to Shelby Farms and sharing the gospel with the Muslims, do we have something to just come alongside them? Because you, because their, their persecution is so different from ours. Yeah. Right? That's a great point. We actually talked about this, and that, that has happened here at Bellevue, where someone becoming a Christian cost her whole relationship with her family couldn't live at home anymore. Um, and thankfully, like you would want to have happen, a family came alongside and said, you can stay with us. You can live here. And it's an awesome story of how that young lady ended up continuing to pursue her parents and who became interested in, in following Christ. Um, so that, yeah, I, I desire that same thing as well. Just like when we talk about coming alongside a young woman who's considering abortion not just saying, hey, abortion is wrong, but hey, I want to come alongside you. And if you'll choose adoption, we'll still be, be alongside you. And if, if nobody will adopt that baby, we'll find a way to do it. You know what I mean? Same kind of thing with coming alongside someone, at least acknowledging too, hey, I know this is costly. This is not a small deal. And affirming that and reminding them that, hey, I'm not just going to tell you this and then leave, but we should as a church, I totally agree, be able and, and ready to do that as part of that whole process. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes, sir. 
Right. Yeah. We get to play a role in it. Yeah. Anything else? I don't want to make it a hostage situation and keep you guys here. If you have any other questions, I'll be happy to hang out. And if, again, even if it's to say, hey, this wasn't quite right. Here's what I actually know about Islam. I'm open to that too. But, and if you didn't like what we talked about, Rick is teaching again next week. So please come back. <laughs> Let me pray for us before we go. Okay. Father, thank you for uh, making yourself known to us. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve your kindness. Um, there's nothing we could do to earn uh, your redemption, and uh, you offer it to us freely. And so out of gratitude for that, we ask that you give us a desire to share it with more people and not get caught up with just the day-to-day -day busyness that prevents us or gives us excuses from doing so. Um, give us concern for our own young people under this roof, uh, and under our roofs at home, that we would equip them to be prepared for the culture they're going out to into every day and uh, to help them be a part of this mission as well, not um, forgetting that there's people all around us that need to know you and, and taking action on that and um, asking for your help with the Holy Spirit. Thanks for our time together tonight, and please protect all these people as they go home. Amen.